Well, if you have your Bibles, you can take your Bible and turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. We are continuing our summer series on the minor prophets. We've titled the book of the 12. This is a series on the minor prophets. And uh, remember, when you hear the word minor, it doesn't mean it's insignificant or unimportant. It just means that it's a little bit smaller than the larger prophetical books, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Turn to the book of Jonah. and We're just going to read the first three verses of chapter 1. We're not going to read a whole lot of... We will refer, of course, to Scripture. We're not going to read the entire thing, of course, for the sake of time. So I'm just going to kind of rely on perhaps some of your previous understanding of Jonah. And if you don't have any previous understanding of Jonah, if you don't even know what the book of Jonah is about, that's okay. Uh, We'll we'll have some verses on the screen. I'll read some, and uh, you'll be able to track along just fine. And so whether you're you're well-seasoned and you can turn right to the book of Jonah, it's probably the only prophetic book you can turn right to. Am I right? Uh, I didn't mean to offend your intelligence there. But let's read chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away from the presence of the Lord. And we're going to stop there as far as our reading goes this morning. Now you may have come in here this morning, grabbed a bulletin, and uh, you may have seen the title for this sermon and the proposition there. And thinking, okay, the title is God in Pursuit. And this morning, if you read your bulletin, it says, Four Principles for Christians on the Run. And you might have thought to yourself, Christians on the Run, well, I'm good. I'm good to go. No problem. But if we have any amount of self-awareness, any amount of self-understanding, as we walk through this book, we're going to find that we are a lot like Jonah. Now, anywhere you cut this book, and whatever chapter you land on, it will bleed spiritual enrichment and blessing and encouragement and rebuke and help. See, the book of Jonah is about a running prophet and a pursuing God. But it gives insight into our own hearts as well. Now this book is, is one of the easiest books to, to slice up. Each chapter is perfectly spelled out. It has four chapters. Chapter 1 is about the storm. Chapter 2 is about the fish. Chapter 3 is about the city. Chapter 4 is about the plant. But when it comes to Jonah, here's another way to look at it. It'll be on the screen. In chapter 1, Jonah went away in rebellion, not submission to God. He went down in regret in chapter 2. This is where he prays, and we're going to look at it. It's not true repentance. He went back to the city in reluctancy, not true willingness. And he went out in chapter 4 in rage, not compassion. Now, we all have areas in our lives or seasons during our lives in which we are on the run from God. And the great thing about this God is that our God graciously pursues us. Now, this is a real book about real events. So it's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not an allegory. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, which we'll look at later in the service, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus takes this as a real story. You remember when people asked for Jesus for a sign? And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 and 41, he says, No sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. 
Just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so must the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says in the next verse, in verse 41, he says, he says the men of Nineveh, they're going to rise up in judgment and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. And so even Jesus says this wasn't a made-up story, this wasn't a fable, this is a real thing that happens. The great giant fish and all. As a matter of fact, if you go to 2 Kings, we're not going to turn there now, but 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, Jonah, son of Amittai, is mentioned by name as a prophet serving under King Jeroboam II. So he does find a place, and he's actually called a prophet in 2 Kings 14, 25. So this takes place before the Assyrians exile and defeat the northern kingdom. In this story... We have a disgruntled Jonah who thought he called the shots. And that's the central story of this book. Jonah thought he could run, and he thought God would reconsider. He thought he could run, and that God would just change his plans, go a different direction, leave him out of the picture. But the sovereign God will never reconsider his plans, and he'll never reconsider his plans for you. And as we see ourselves in the book of Jonah we ought to pursue the same heart of God that we're going to see. We should avoid the heart of Jonah, pursue the heart of God as we seek to pursue his glory over the face of the earth. So this morning, let's get right into it. Four principles for Christians on the run. Number one, if you run from God, you'll go down. If you run from God, you'll go down. Now, what he does here is he gives us the command. That's the first thing we have in, in verse 2, where God says, go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the last great capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it was very prosperous. As a matter of fact, it's referred to as a great city in chapter 1, in chapter 3, and in chapter 4. Anytime God talks about this city, Nineveh, he calls it a great city. Now, the remains of this city can be found in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Um, as matter, if you've been aware of the news recently, ISIS, uh, just a few years ago, destroyed what was called the Tomb of Jonah. Right, that was kind of a big deal as they see ISIS declaring an all-out war, of course, against religion. But there was a Tomb of Jonah there, so even, even up until a few years ago, the history of this story has lived on in Iraq. The Assyrians were mostly enemies of the northern kingdom. There were times of synthetic peace when Israel would pay a hefty tribute. But eventually the Assyrians would come and they would destroy the northern kingdom. And what you have before you is what God, where God is telling Jonah to go and where he's actually going. And so he goes to Joppa and instead of going to Nineveh, he takes off the complete opposite direction. Now, there's something great about here. It's because behind the grandeur and the prosperity of Nineveh, there was great wickedness. And that's what God says. He says, their evil has come before me. Now, the barbaric brutality of the Assyrians is stuff of historical legend. They murdered their own babies and children if they were unwanted. They would, they would treat their enemies, and it in, included grisly torture. And that's where God is calling Jonah. Do you know that God's love for you extends to you, but it also extends beyond you? And that's what Jonah, he decided to run away. 
And this map is showing Jonah where he's supposed to go and where he thought he'd go instead. And so what we see here, he wasn't just turning his back on God and saying, I'm not going. He didn't just, you know, put down his feet and say, no, I'm not moving. He actually ran completely the other way. As a matter of fact, one, est- one commentator estimated that the trip to Tarshish with stops at ports would have taken close to a year to complete. So this means that Jonah wasn't just turning his back. He wasn't just saying no to God. He had planned on, he was never coming back. And he was never going to go where God wanted him to go. So Jonah found the ship. He paid the fare to travel, which would have been a significant amount of money. And immediately, remember what it says here in verse 3. It says, he went down to Joppa, and then he found a ship, and he paid the fare, and then he went down into it. It was as if Jonah was closing himself in his rebellion and refusing to come out. But God would show him just how low his rebellion was going to take him. And if you're a Christian and you're on the run from God in some area of your life, then hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Jonah. You will never be successful. And whatever depths you stoop to hide from your sin and from your running from God, God will bring you lower yet. And that's just what happens in, verses, uh, in verse 4 through the end of the chapter. God hurls this great storm. And it's as, if, it's as if God was waiting out at sea for Jonah. It's, it's as if God knew exactly where Jonah would end up. It's as if there's nowhere you could go where God wouldn't already be there. It's as if you can't flee from God's presence. And I don't think Jonah was mistaken theologically on the promise of God. So here we have uh, three different times in this chapter it says he was fleeing from the presence of God. As in verse 3, uh, we read again in verse 10, they knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now he's a prophet, which means I don't think he misunderstood Psalm 139. Where's Psalm 139? Where, can I, where, where shall I go from your spirit? Where, where, where shall I flee from, flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, behold, you're there. If I, if I take the wings of the morning and I go to the uttermost part of the sea, behold, you're there. Your hand will be with me. Your presence will be with me. I don't think Jonah was mistaken about that. What Jonah does is ignore what he knew in order to create a God he wanted. And that's what Christians on the run do. They ignore what they know about God and they create a God that they want. And so Jonah figured there would be a point where he was just so far away that God would throw his hands up in the air and say, Nah, he's too far gone. He's too far away. It's time to give up and I guess figure out another plan. But God wouldn't do that. And God won't do that for you. Now, the professional sailors, as we read in this passage, they were afraid. The ship was threatening to fall apart. Uh, Verse 4, the ship was threatened to break up, so they start throwing cargo overboard. These were international polytheists, and so they they each start calling on their gods. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his god. So they each had a god, and they each start crying out. They're trying to figure out, this storm is not a normal storm. 
The gods are angry, and so they start crying out. But they didn't realize that the problem that they were in was in the heart of the ship. And that's where Jonah was. Verse 5, Jonah had gone down in the inner, inner part. Now, notice this, now he's in the inner part. He's in the inner part of the ship, and he laid down, and he was fast asleep. So there's Jonah, sleeping, oblivious, and callous, not serving, not helping, not caring. And I think it's important to see the blindness of sin here. Because Jonah was in the most dangerous part of the ship to be in when you're about to be in shipwreck. I did a lot of Google searches on this, so you you, you know I'm coming from a very, very well-researched thing here. And Wikipedia, everything I looked at, not like the 14 steps to surviving a shipwreck that Wikipedia offers, or, you know, the 10 steps to surviving a shipwreck that this person offers, not a single one of them says, if you're about to be in a shipwreck, run to the middle of the ship way down at the bottom. What do they say? Get off the ship. Don't go down with it. Jump off. But Jonah, thinking he's secure in his rebellion and in his running, is sitting in the very spot that happens to be the most dangerous, and he's sleeping. And when we're on the run from God, we'll create a God that fits our thing, and we'll just fall fast asleep thinking, what could possibly happen to me? The captain comes to wake Jonah up, and he calls on him to pray. Jonah never prays. Not in chapter 1. Could that be a sign that someone is on the run, a prayerless life? Eventually, as the story goes on in chapter 1, they cast lots. It's, it's a rolling of colored dice to figure out who is responsible for the storm. And the lot fell on Jonah. It reminds us of the verse in Proverbs chapter 16, doesn't it? Uh, where it's be on the screen for you. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And that's how it lands to Jonah. God was miraculously directing and, 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 and using those laws to say, hey, here's your guy. He's, he's, the, he's the trouble. And so the sailors get to the bottom of what's going on, and, and Jonah tells them, so get this, Jonah says, if you want this to stop, you need to throw me overboard. And the response of the sailors in verse 12 and 13, it says in verse 13, it says, nevertheless, even though Jonah said, hey, you need to throw me overboard, the men rode hard, tried to get back to dry land. Man, how nice are these guys? Have you noticed the difference between these pagan sailors and this Christian prophet? I mean, these sailors, a stranger gets on their ship, and they're about, he's about to cause them all to die, and instead of just throwing them overboard, they do everything they can to save them. God calls his chosen prophet to go to Nineveh to save the Ninevites. And instead, Jonah says, well, instead of being your instrument in saving those people, I'm going to run away. Well, they eventually throw him over. And immediately, the sea settles to a calm. God had something waiting for him. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here's the comparison. Did you notice how far down Jonah was going? Down to Joppa down into the ship, down into the heart of the ship, down into the sea, down into the belly of a great fish. 
How did he get there? Well, there's a run sequence. As we look back over this chapter, we can see how did Jonah, how did, how did Jonah get there? Well, here's, here's the run sequence. First, he hardened his heart to God's word. Second, he created a God who fit inside his decisions. Third, he closed his eyes to the danger his running away was, that his run, the running away was really put him in. And then he despised prayer. And he even says in verse 12, he says, pick me up and throw me out. He thought death was, he did not know that fish was waiting down there for him. He said, the only way out is death. And Christians on the run, you can get to the point where you say, I'm stuck, I'm lost, I'm gone. The only way out is death. But God has a rescue for you. And God wants to rescue you. Listen, if you run from God, you'll go down. But the story goes on. I often, I ask, one of the first questions I ask about this passage is why didn't it end at, chapter, at verse 3 of chapter 1? Okay, Jonah ran away. Okay, God, go get somebody else. Why do we need three more chapters? Why do we need four chapters? Because God loved Jonah, and God had some work. And if you're on the run, God loves you. If you're a Christian and you're on the run, God loves you. And you still got some work to do in your life. The storm would stop Jonah in his tracks, and the great fish will get him back on track. The story doesn't end here. There must be more that God wants to accomplish. But the first principle for Christians on the run is that if you run from God, you'll go down. Here's number two. Number two, deliverance from your darkness comes through repentance. Deliverance from your darkness comes through repentance. Now, God, let's look at God's rescue plan. God's rescue plan for Jonah was to be swallowed by a giant fish. Now, we don't know if it was a whale. We don't, we, we don't know what kind of fish it was. But this is a miraculous sort of fish. God had directed this giant fish so that at the exact moment Jonah was thrown overboard, as he's sinking down into the depths, if you read through chapter 2, he describes how he was, he was, he was at the very base of the mountains. Verse 6, he says, the, the, verse 5 and 6, the water's closing over me, the deep surrounded me, the weeds were wrapped around me. I was at the roots of the mountains, and life began to close in. And then here comes this great, big, giant fish to swallow up Jonah. God had Jonah go overboard from the ship because he had a submarine to catch. And Jonah was miraculously preserved for three days and three nights. And if you're in here saying, that just sounds, man, that just sounds crazy. And listen, you can go back in time and there's historical events and accounts of people who have been swallowed by whales in the early 1900s and stuff, but we don't need that. You want to know why? If you take the miraculous out of the Bible, how much of the Bible do you have left? Our God is a God of miracles. And this fish was miraculously assigned by God, and he was miraculously saved. Jonah was spared so that he could get back on track. And so we get to chapter 2, and now Jonah's realizing how much God loves him. That's why he says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. All like now I see it, God loves me. This fish, this nasty stomach that I'm in, this is a sign of God's love. And God rescued him. A miraculously huge fish is carrying him to safety. That's how God's working in his life. 
Now, as we look through chapter 2, we're not going to read through all of it or, or dig up a whole bunch from chapter 2, but Jonah does give us a, key, a few keys that should make up our repentance. And again, these will be on the screen for you. Jonah gives us a few keys. Number one, he acknowledged God's just discipline in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. He says, yeah, I, I'm down here. You, verse 3, it's interesting. He says, for you cast me into the deep. He didn't say the sailors cast him into the deep. He says, God, you did. This is part of your sovereign plan. He confesses his help of his helplessness apart from God in verses 4 through 6. And then he confessed his idols. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. In verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah had idols. And as we take the whole story into account, chapters 1 to 4, we find out that his idols are comfort. You know, I'll do for God what fits into my idea of ministry, my comfortable little ministry. Entitlement. God's grace is for me. It's not for others. It's for me. It's for my people. It's for those I want God to show grace to. It's not for that person. Self was an idol. He wanted to call the shots. He wanted to say where he went, when he went. He wanted to say who got the preaching, who got the grace, and who didn't. Defensiveness at the end of chapter 4. Yes, defensiveness is an idol. We love to whip this idol of self-defense out. Anytime anybody would dare implicate that we might actually be a sinner or might actually have something wrong with us, watch out, right? He flings back at God in chapter 4. We'll get to that. And then he praises God for his salvation. That's the theme of the Bible. Salvation belongs to our God. That's some keys. And I'm not saying you have to go step by step by step, but this is what it means. This is what it means to follow God. And that's what Jonah did. And after all that, there's, there's an asterisk here, isn't there? Because if you know the end of the story, it'll turn out in chapter 4 that Jonah wasn't that repentant. He wasn't truly repentant. He was no more delighted in God's will now in chapters 2, 3, and 4 as he was in chapter 1. And as we'll see in chapter 4, Jonah still had darkness in his heart. There wasn't much of an attitude change. He was praying, his prayer was motivated by his danger and getting out of that danger, but not by delight in God. And listen, our prayers, I mean, could you raise your hand and say, my prayers are always 100% pure motives, always pure motives behind my prayers? Listen, they're not. Mine aren't. But if you're inclined towards God, and God is, is warming your spirit towards him, just pray. Just pray. Christian, true repentance that takes place in the heart is a beautiful thing. Now, it might be kind of ugly on the outside. When God brings back one of his children, and yes, Christians, we too can walk in the darkness of sin. When God brings back one of his children, it may be ugly on the outside. It might, it might look like being vomited out of a giant fish. It might look like, remember Luke 15, the prodigal son, prodigal sons, uh, the one was slopping around with the pigs, all gross and muddy. I mean, it might, it's not going to look pretty, and it might look ugly as, as God pulls you back to him, but you'll be forgiven, and you'll be set free, and that's what repentance is supposed to do. It may not clean up your life. You might still have the vomit and the mud and the grossness on you, but God will cleanse your heart, and that's the point. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, have you ever stopped to realize 
the plight that you're in, how helpless you are. Because like Jonah, we are all tangled in the snares of death. Like Jonah, we have all run away from God. And there's nothing we can do to escape it. As, as Jonah said, the bars closed upon me forever. There's no escape. But salvation belongs to our God. And he has made, of a way, a made a way of escape through Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose again. And if you believe in him, God offers to spit you out of that darkness and bring you into his family. Chapter 2 closes. Jonah has experienced a miraculous pursuit, a miraculous rescue, but he still had lessons to learn. And that's what brings us to chapter 3 and our third principle. If you run from God, you'll go down. Your dark deliverance from your darkness comes through repentance. And number three, God often gives second chances. Savor them. And even write a word under that word savor and write redeem. I can't figure out which one I wanted to go for. So you get them both. God often gives second chances. Savor them. Redeem them. Now the command again, God gives him the same command. Notice God didn't change his plan. Notice God wasn't like, man, you've been through a lot. I think I'm ready to take it easy on you. No. His plan stayed the same. And God says, here's here's your second chance. Go to Nineveh, chapter 3, and preach out against it. Call out against it the words that I tell you. He gets a second chance to fulfill what God had called him to do. And while we should never assume that God will always be giving us second chances, third chances, ten chances, and while God's forgiveness is never an excuse for sin, we ought to praise God for being a God of second chances. Are you a Christian of second chances? Are you a parent of second chances? Are you a pastor, a deacon, a church member of second chances? Even as I was preparing this message And think about these second chances. We must be sure to redeem, savor second chances instead of revive old sins. I've had conversations even just recently. I have family on the run right now. And I'm praying they redeem and savor God's second chances, that they would even see the second chances that God gives them. And I know many of you have maybe family or friends on the run as you speak. A kid that's wayward. A brother or sister, a mom or dad. Pray that they would see and savor and redeem the second chances of God. And you yourself, if you're on the run, same goes for you. See it, savor it, redeem it. Jonah arrives in this great city, and he begins to preach. He spends three days proclaiming his message. Now, Nineveh, its population, if you go to the very end of the book, in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Nineveh, that great city, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, depending how you interpret that, whether he's referring to children or he's referring to the whole population and they're just clueless, but most likely the population is somewhere between, you know, 200,000 all the way to 600,000 people on the upper end. So there are lots of people. And as mentioned before, there was lots of sin, lots of it, put Sodom and Gomorrah to shame. And even while Jonah was there, he may have seen the piles of skulls of beheaded victims that the king of Nineveh would set out for all to see. He could have seen the bodies of impaled captives struggling for their lives, lining the streets, 
like the Assyrians were known to do. He may have seen their disregard for women, their shameless killing of babies and children, and their inhumane treatment of nations that they conquered. He probably saw it all. And in the Hebrew language, Jonah preached a five-word sermon. Now, Jonah's sermon isn't very impressive. Yet 40 days, at the end of verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's the message. It turns out to be one of the most powerful sermons ever preached. It turns out to lead to one of the greatest revivals this world has ever seen. Because they were God's words. So they were God's words. The people of the city responded with true repentance and God delivered them. And eventually, when we get to the book of Nahum, we're going to be reading about the Assyrians, and, so, and especially Nineveh, and it's going to be a completely different story. And you're going to go, what happened? Why is God saying all these terrible judgments coming on Nineveh? I'm getting way ahead of myself. We'll get there when we get there. But the repentance here was real. Jesus says it was real. I, already, I quoted this at the beginning, but it'll be on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 12. Where he says, the men of Nineveh will rise, uh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they're going to condemn it. Jesus says, they're going to condemn you Jews, those Ninevites, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. There it is. Jesus says, their repentance was real, it was true. And he says, listen, you have someone greater than Jonah, who, by the way, is preaching a lot better of a message than Jonah preached. See, Jonah wasn't the only one who got a second chance. He was used as an instrument to give the Ninevites a second chance. If you're not a Christian, you too can have a second chance to be born again into God's family. And never presume you have no more time. Now, Jonah said, yet 40 days. Now, think about this. The Ninevites had no idea that there was irrevocable judgment coming in 40 days. And neither do you, neither do I. We don't know how much time we have left. We don't know that 40 days from right now could be the very moment we stand before God. And we will be either cast into the lake of fire or we'll be joining him in heaven for all eternity. Don't presume on second chances, but God does give them. And listen, there's not a Christian in here who wouldn't affirm that God is a God of second chances. Can I get an amen? A God of forgiveness. But I want you to notice God in this story. Notice his attitude. He didn't say, okay, fine, Jonah, you ran. He didn't just cross his arms, turn his back, snuff up his nose, and just wait for Jonah to come crawling back. The storm, the fish, the hardship, God went after him. God was saying, Jonah, I love you. I love you, and I'm not going to let you go. There's a far greater life for you in my presence and in my will, and that's what God's saying to you if you're on the run. Saying, Zach Fisher, I love you, and I'm not going to let you run. I'm not going to let you go. There's a better life in my presence, in my will. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even a ship to Joppa. In whatever ways you have failed or you are failing, God is going to give you fresh opportunities to please him. He's going to give you second chances. Be ready for them. Let's be ready to tell others about Jesus as God gives us second 
chances in that? As a church, may we be a church of second chances. We preach a lot about the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. May we be a church that lives it. And while that doesn't mean we we disobey God when it comes to matters of church discipline, it does mean that we are willing to show grace and mercy and help to those who are struggling and those who are asking for help. And we will be that church. If you run from God, you'll go down. Deliverance from your darkness comes through repentance. God often gives second chances Savor them, redeem them. And the final principle from the book of Jonah is this. God won't change his plans. He wants to change you as we get into chapter four. Warren Wearsby says, if, if the book of Jonah had ended at the last verse of chapter three, history would have portrayed Jonah as the greatest of the prophets, end quote. Again, I asked myself while I was studying this, why not end at chapter 3? I mean, he did what he was called to do. The Ninevites, they were saved. There's this great revival. Why not end at chapter 3? Well, Jonah may have gone through the motions of what God wanted him to do, but God cares about the heart. We've said it time and time again in this, in this series. God wants your heart. He doesn't want your religion. He doesn't want your church membership. He wants your heart first of all. And so that's why we have chapter 4. Now, by the time we get to chapter 4, the 40 days are past. Okay, so the 40 days are gone and no destruction. The, 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 the judgment of God was not poured out on the Ninevites because God had, notice at, uh, chapter, at the end of chapter 3, it says God relented of the disaster that he said to do to them. Now, we know we serve a God who doesn't change. And so if you're wondering, well, does God change? He doesn't. Okay, God didn't go from plan A to plan B. God went from plan A part one to plan A part two. That's what God did there. Okay, yes, the judgment was real and it was coming. That was plan A part one. Jonah preached, they were saved. That was was plan A part two. And so God spares them. And so the 40 days have passed, no destruction. And this just infuriates Jonah. Notice it says, verse four, chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It, it's, this is like anger from the deepest of deeps in your soul. It's like this anger penetrated to the furthest spiritual cell that Jonah had in his body. And he just could not come to terms that these pagan Ninevites would experience the spiritual blessings of God. This is is why he didn't want to go. That's why it says in verse 2, Oh Lord, this is what I said when I was in my country. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He says, I knew you're a gracious God. Jonah says, the moment you told me to go to Nineveh, the first thing I thought of is God wants to save them. He says, I knew you're a a gracious God and merciful, that you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that you relent concerning disaster. Now, this, this is a creed mentioned over and over again in the Bible. It's used by the Jews as their own creed about who God is. And Jonah says, there's no way those Ninevites are going to experience that from you. We're your people. We're the Jews. We're the Israelites. Those spiritual blessings are for us. The last thing he wanted to see was God showing grace to people like the Ninevites. 
And he was so completely miserable and out of sync with God. In verses 5 through 9, Jonah goes outside the city and he builds himself a little hut. And he looks at the city and he sits there and he waits for as long as he needs to wait until God changes his mind and sends the fire. Little did he know that that hut that he built was going to become a school of hard knocks. Because God was about to teach him a lesson. And he gives him this object lesson. You know the story. He builds this hut to see if God would change his mind and destroy Nineveh. And while there, God causes this plant to grow. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and it it came up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Notice what it says here. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. You realize this is the only time in the story where Jonah is glad. Might have been hints of rejoicing and praise in chapter 2 at his deliverance. But here he's exceedingly glad. He's exceedingly glad that God did something for him to ease his discomfort. And listen, if, you're, if the only time you're ever glad in this church, at Calvary Baptist Church, is when something happens that fits your preferences or makes you comfortable or gets your toes a tapping or whatever, but the rest of the time you spend critical of others and critical of whatever, then it's time to assess our hearts. When are we most likely to be really glad? So what does God do next? Verse 7, when dawn came the next day, he appointed a worm. It, it's an interesting as you track through all the things God appointed. Hurled the storm, he appointed the fish, he appointed the tree, he appointed the worm. In verse here in verse 7, and then when the sun rose, it withered. And then verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching heat, uh, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He's having almost like a little heat stroke here. If you ever had heat stroke or, or heat exhaustion, you know heat could be very dangerous and it can cause you to die even. And Jonah says, and he says, he says, he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Lord, just take me out. I'm so miserable. And God said to Jonah, do you have, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah actually responds to God. Do you notice what he says there? Yes. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. He takes the plant away. And it wasn't to torture Jonah. He wanted to help Jonah see his heart. God wanted Jonah to see God's heart. And that heat gives Jonah a small taste of what the Ninevites would have experienced had the judgment of God been unleashed. And Jonah, when he gets a small taste of God's judgment, a small taste of what God can do to somebody, he freaks out and says, man, God, you can't do this. This is terrible. This is terrible. And then God says in verse 10, you pity the plant that gave you shade for which you did not labor, you didn't make it grow. It came into being at night and it perished in the night. What did you have to do with it? And then he says, Nineveh, I created them. That great city in which there are, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Oh, hey, and Jonah, by the way, in case you really don't care about the people, could you at least care for the cattle?
flings back at God with that self-justification, just like that prodigal son in Luke 15, the prodigal son that comes in from the field and says, Father, why are you throwing a party for this, for this guy? Jonah was willing to take God for who he is when God showed him grace. But he couldn't stand the sight of seeing others receive that same grace that God showed him. And in verse 10 through 11, Jonah still needed to learn that God has compassion on sinners other than just him. Jonah appreciated the plant because it served him and it served his desires. But when it came to God's desire to see the Ninevites saved, Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. And listen closely. The moment, the very moment we lose our interest in telling sinners about God's grace, we have lost what makes life worth living. What broke God's heart? What broke God's heart, which would have been hell for the Ninevites, would have made Jonah happy. mentioned this last week in the email. When I was in high school, I worked security at the Nebraska State Fair. Uh, it was more of a laid-back job uh, that I got through a higher-up connection. Um, but one of the security details that I had the privilege of working were the concerts that came to the Nebraska State Fair. So I was a guy who would stand uh, down off the stage and make sure that people didn't go beyond a certain point and, you know, people didn't jump on stage or anything like that. And so, um, so I got to do that, lose all my hearing. It was great. Uh, and then, so one, one guy who came through was the great Charlie Daniels and put on a, a great show, but there was, a, there was a section in there that sticks out to me more than anything. In the middle of the show, Charlie Daniels starts listing all of these sorts of heinous crimes that people commit. And then he says with the music going and with his with his charismatic personality, he says, he says after listing all these high offense criminal activities, he says, don't take him to the judge, just take him out and hang him. You know, to which the whole crowd cheered, yes, yes, yes. I remember telling my friends, I called my brother and said, dude, you have no idea what Charlie Daniels said. He's like, we shouldn't even, we shouldn't even do anything with these guys. We should just forget the judge, just take him out and hang these guys. Man, it was the coolest part of the concert. There are doctors pulling babies limb from limb in this country. There are men and women committing atrocities against children in this country. And when I think of my attitude towards them, I come to realize I'm a lot like Jonah and a lot less like God. God's heart is larger than our hearts. But we can be just as resentful as Jonah. Here's what the author of the book called You, Jonah, Thomas Carlyle says. He says, he says this in his book. He says, And Jonah stalked to his shaded sea and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. Which viewpoint do you, hor- do, you, do you have towards the outside world? God's or Jonah's? We should never say to God, I'm not, I, will, I will never share the gospel with that person. As a matter of fact, here's what I encourage you to do. And this is what I even, even uh, God impressed on my heart to do. As you drive home, as you think of family members who are lost, 
As you drive by a neighbor's house and you know that they don't know Jesus, you say to yourself and before the Lord, God, I will share the gospel with that person. Would you and your plan and according to your plan give me an opportunity? We need to start saying, God, I'll share the gospel with that person. God, I'll share the gospel with my neighbor, with my family member. Do you notice the book ends at the end of chapter 4? What happened? What happened to Jonah? How does this runaway prophet, how does this story end? I think it ends that way because you need to ask, how does your story end? I look at Jonah and I see in myself my own tendency to follow my own running heart, my own running thoughts, my own running attitudes away from God. And I cry out like Paul did in Romans chapter 7, who's going to save me from this body of death? Is there someone greater than Jonah? Is there someone who ran with God the entire way? Is there someone who loves me, a Ninevite in my own right? Is there someone who loves me enough to come after me? And thanks be to God, the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Someone greater than Jonah is here. And just as Jonah was in the, the, the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man was crucified, buried in the heart of the earth, and he rose again, and he gives eternal life to anyone who believes on him. And Christians, for you who are on the run, if you run from God, you'll go down. Deliverance from your darkness comes through repentance, but God often gives second chances, savor them, redeem them. And God won't change his plans, but he does want to change you. Let's pray. Father, as we close now, I pray that you would bring back those dear to us, dear to us who are running. Lord, and that those who are maybe in the service this morning who are running, God, bring them back. Lord, my own running heart, my own running desires, my own running thoughts, my own running attitudes. I thank you for the many second chances you've given to me. Lord, may I redeem and savor them. Lord, may we be people, not like Jonah, but go and give the gospel, tell the good news of Jesus to the whole world, to those around us, our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.